Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced on unceded Wurundjeri lands at 3CR in Nah, Melbourne, and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is AC. On today's show, I'd like to give you a taste of some of the talks from the Students of Sustainability Conference, or SOS. The annual conference was held here in Nam and started in the first weekend of July, bringing together students and Indigenous and non-Indigenous activists and organisers from across Australia. It started with a welcome to country by Uncle Bill Nicholson, Wurundjeri Elder. As part of the welcome, he spoke a little about traditional owners' experience on the land where SOS was held. When people gather here on country, uh, we've got a little bit mixed up here today because this time of year wasn't much ceremonial gathering going on. Too cold. Just when you're around the fire with your possum skin cloak, uh, the men would be teaching weapon making um, for the young boys. Women would be teaching the skills that young women needed to know as they grew into older men and women themselves and their responsibilities. Much stories and knowledge exchange was going on. And there was no flimsy hut like the white man wrote in his history book. There were solid housing foundations uh, here on country. Uh, I'll give you an example, a man named Dawson on his horse um, found that he was on this big mound um, that he didn't know was an Aboriginal house. But um, it held him and his horse's weight, which, was, which to me uh, always uh, says that it's quite a, a strong structure. And our traditional camps are all... Everyone had their place within traditional camps as well as within traditional society through the knowledge and experiences. Because as we all know, not everyone's the same and that's what makes unique people. And same in traditional culture. Uh, Wurundjeri culture worked like a, a well-oiled machine. Everyone played their part in society. And that's why things like anxiety, stresses... You know, waking up in the morning, knowing whether you're gonna, what you're going to eat and who's going to obtain it was not even a, a consideration because all the young children, as they grew up here on country, were taught the skills and knowledge to take on that responsibility and when they became adults. And in a society which the wife I call uncivilised, our children actually hit adulthood half a decade earlier than what children hit adulthood today at the amazing age of 18. Just a number, see? Traditionally, you had to earn it. You had, you had to show the elders that you, you were listening. You did have respect. And one thing about Wurundjeri's sovereignty here on country was it's, it wasn't something that was just handed to you, the leadership under the law. You know, the leadership that uh, gave you say over the resources, gave you say over interaction with your own mob and other mobs as well, and also your, your responsibility to bundle and the ceremonial processes. One thing that I understand about our great leaders of the past here was that they weren't leaders that demanded respect, they earned it from the people that they were, the strong character that they had. And it was in Wurundjeri culture, we call him the Rinadath. He's the To me, he's the most fascinating character in our traditional culture. He was the medicine man, he was your, your doctor, your specialist. 
you also had high authority in society. And it, for instance, if, if I was not in Gita, um, headman of my people, um, and my son would then take on that leadership role, but if my son was not an ups of an upstanding character and respect earned, not demanded, the Wirarat would take that from my family line and give it to a family line that, that had that responsibility through character and respect of leadership. So, uh, so that to me is one of the great strengths of our culture past and that's why we look back and acknowledge our elders past because uh, first of all identity, um, culture itself uh, and uh, here, in, here in Victoria um, our survival because I don't think you would have me, Lydia and, and Uncle Larry up here without our elders' ability to adapt to those environmental changes over thousands of years. We've got stories of that river forming. We've got stories of Nunham, Geelong, Corio, which they call Port Phillip Bay, forming on country. They say they're 12 to 15,000 years old, these particular water bodies. We have stories that, amazingly enough, have survived the invasion here on country. So, um, so yeah, I, I acknowledge elders here for our survival. Just a couple of local stories before I hand it over. Um, Melbourne itself uh, is a breach of the ceremony we just did. And what I mean by that is when you were welcome to country here in a traditional sense, you would conduct your business and then you're expected to travel home. It's kind of like having a visitor come and stay at your house and then never leaving. Eventually you want to kick him out. Um, yeah, uh, even if it's family or friends, eventually you want your space. So traditionally, there was a war party. The lawmen, I'm not sure which mob it was, but the story says that they were coming from the north to uphold the law of this land. They were going to take out the early settlers, which were numbered less than around 100. I should say early unsettlers, because that's a Wurundjeri perspective of the early British that came here. They unsettled country, they didn't settle it. So um, what happened was a man named William Buckley, a um, very interesting story from um, the Watherong part of country here, uh, with Geelong, town of Geelong, and out, out that way, Ballarat and, and so, towns out in the western area of Victoria there. Uh, who warned the elders of Pinnabalari, Bebijun, Jagger Jagger, the great lawman, a young William Bagg, young Wonga were there at the time, um, and said, you, you touch the white man, retaliate in any way, they'll come and shoot you like kangaroo, they're going to clear all your land, and they're going to take, they're going to uh, come in greater numbers than they've ever seen before. And the wisdom of the elders actually warned those early unsettlers um, that this was about to happen and there was no conflict in those very early days of this city they now call Melbourne. If there was conflict under law, there probably would not be any Aboriginal survivors of this particular part of country because of not just the impact of their gun, but also the impact of what we call in language um, the Mindai. The Mindai symbolised by the deadly snake here on country but the Mindai uh, formed itself into what the white fellow calls smallpox. And smallpox took out, we believe, close to 99% of the population of this area before a man with a funny name, John Batman, came to this particular part of the country and he's called the founder of Melbourne. So when the white fellow write down culture in the way they saw it in this part of the world, they saw a culture that was very heavily, uh, almost its structure of its society was not the way it was for the thousands of years prior because so much of the population had been destroyed by that horrible disease which was seen here in 1803. It came through again in 1828 and then Batman came here 
And that man, uh, quite interesting, because he's the only one that ever tried to attempt some form of treaty with any of the mobs of Aboriginal Australia. But again, traditional ways of seeing things, it's kind of like saying, you know, uh, if I was to ask you to cut off your arm and sell it to me, you'd, you'd probably uh, think I was a total crazy person. Uh, but that's how the old fellows would have seen it, with a man with a piece of paper saying, give me 600,000 acres of your land, uh, and I'll give you 200 pounds worth of my goods, blankets, scissors, flour, sugar, uh, on an annual basis, by the way, and only paid it once. So that's 1835, that's a long, long time ago, but of interest, I think, Zade. Um, and also the value of this sacred country. That's something that uh, you know, Lydia might talk about with today's treaty and what we're trying to achieve. But the Condert mission was self-sufficient. We did not have our handout ever for government, a handout for anything. Back in those days, if you didn't have any access to land, you'd probably starve to death. So people like Simon Wonga from the 1850s through to the 1860s, 1870s when Barak took over Wonga, Wonga's leadership, um, we, did, we did not need the white fella at all with their assistance. We had adapted to their enforced ways of living. We were successful at it. We even won awards in their, in their agricultural shows for the quality of our, of our, of our crops and our agriculture. Our kids were adapting to this enforced colony onto us by learning their language, their, uh, their maths, and the way they did things. Because the elders knew, from in this country here, in 1851, a place called Warrandyte, a little bit further up river there, that was the last traditional ceremonies, I understand, the last games of Mangrook, which are traditional football, the last initiations here on country. Imagine the weight of responsibility that Wonga had on his shoulders Thousands of years of cultural responsibility on his shoulders and he had to pull the plug on traditional ways of living because it could not be sustainable anymore and he had to consider his people's future. So, you know, that could sort of relate to a little bit today about how we sort of treat this land and how we treat our resources and whether we are going to have a sustainable future because Wonga, Wonga knew that certain ways of change, even though it might have been hard at the time, he had to do it. Um, but we do know from oral history that cultural practices were still being held at Corrindirk, but done in secret, because those superintendents that the Protection Board put in place uh, would remove you from the mission and you were not wanted anywhere else. After its great success of many decades, in 1886, William Barrack walked from Hillsville to Melbourne many times, because the basic right of uh, earning a wage for doing the same work as the white man, white men get paid, black men get nothing. So he had to walk because he couldn't get the, uh, afford the ticket on the stagecoach to get in here. And he didn't muck around. If you're walking in the city there, Parliament House in the Treasury Building, that's where he went. And he met with the governors, he met with the premiers. And the very first Royal Commission ever in this country was concerning the conditions and treatment at Corrindirk Mission Station on his people. He fought very hard for our basic human rights. But then the government threw a massive spanner in the works. They call it the Protection Act or the Half-Caste Act. And that was the first policy, official policy. The poor old Tasmanians, they didn't even get a policy because they were, they were almost destroyed off the face of the earth by the violence down there. It started to occur here. The 1886 Half-Caste Act was the start of the Stolen Generation policies and then it spread throughout the rest of the country. And it's still happening today from what we heard earlier from up in the Northern Territory, which is really sad to see. And uh, we, again, that needs to change.
That was Wurundjeri elder Uncle Bill Nicholson talking about ongoing colonisation and government policy. This talk was given as part of the Welcome to Country at the Students of Sustainability Conference. The conference brought people from across Australia, including First Nations people fighting for environmental and social justice in many different campaigns. Annie Hazel Collins from Grandmothers Against Removals was one, and she spoke from her own experience fighting to stop Aboriginal children being taken by the state. Please be aware that Annie Hazel uses some strong language in her talk that some may find offensive. If that's a concern for you, please switch off now. Hello everybody. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land and showing my respect elders past and present. I'm the founder of Grandmother's Against Removals. Um, you'll have to bear with me. I do get a little bit upset, but I don't apologise for that. In 2009, um, my daughter had two children removed by the department. Um, then 12 months later, she had another little boy removed. Then she had another little boy, and they tried to take him from birth. From birth. But we had a meeting with the department, and I argued very strongly, and they overturned their, their orders and gave, her back, gave him back to her. So she was able to take him home from the hospital. But then in January of 2014, he was 15 months old. Four docks workers and nine police came to the house to remove him. She rang me to come down and to try and sort out what was going on. I'm a grandmother of 34 grandchildren. I've got three great-grandchildren. I raised four biological children of my own, three stepchildren, and two I gathered along the way, as we as Aboriginal people do. I was deemed unsuitable to take any of my grandchildren. When I asked why, they said they didn't have to answer that. Well, I'm sorry, but you do. So when they took my little baby, I actually audioed the removal on another daughter's phone. They told me I couldn't do it. They said, I can't use it. I said, watch me, I'll get that printed out and I'll sign it as a true and accurate statement. I told them they'd take no more. If they came back for any more of my children, they didn't have enough coppers there. They'd need to bring the army the next time. So I started Grandma's Against Removals because I made my daughter and my little grandchild a promise that he would come home. We had our first rally on the 13th of February, 2014 in Sydney. It was very, very hard um, to try and support my daughter because she'd lost everything. I've got a big mouth and I don't mind using it. My daughter was ashamed. We don't own that shame for Christ's sake. She's got nothing to be ashamed of. That's something that the department puts on us that makes us feel that we're less 
less of a person, that we can't look after our children. You know, my daughter, she, she was allowed to see her babies eight hours a year, four times a year for two, two hours. I defy anybody that asked points to the ground to show me how you can have a relationship with a child eight hours a year. That's a working day in anybody's life. How do you teach that child about who they are, where they come from? How do you teach them about their ancestral footprint? How did they grow up to be strong Aboriginal people and respect who they are and where they came from and where they're going forward? That cannot happen. This, this has been going on since invasion. They've been stealing our babies to wipe us out, take away our identity, who we are. So on the 13th of February 2014, I stood out in front of Parliament House with a lot of other people that come up calling for us as Aboriginal people to stand up, not as individuals but as one. Expose the crimes, not only of this department, the police, governments, they all need to be made accountable. They're not going to do it by us sitting down and letting them get away with it. We have to unite as one. We're First Nation people, but we are the worst treated in our own country. Rudd got up and said, sorry, God bless his ass. <laughs> I told that man he's an idiot <laughs> to his face. While he was up there saying sorry, he didn't do his own work. While he's saying sorry in Parliament, these little footmen's out there stealing our kids. If we walk into somebody else's house and we walk out with their child, we're charged with abduction. We're also charged with break and enter. Police need to be made accountable because they are condoning and abetting a crime. The crime of break and enter, stealing our children. We need to make them accountable. And then Prue Goward, God bless her, Foxy ass. she legislated that our babies can be forcibly adopted. And what that looks like is, if they have a baby from birth to six months in their care, which does not give families time, through the court system, which again fails us, they can put that na baby's name on any adoption paper. Parents don't get notified that this is occurring because they have no right. PR is to the minister. So the minister signs off on that adoption. That baby can, name can be changed, can go anywhere in the world. Its heritage can be denied to that baby. Families don't get to see that baby ever again. You have a baby from two years upward and you have to hold that baby for 12 months and they again can sign off on the adoption. My daughter fought for seven years for Christ's sake to get her babies back. Now we have no illusion why they gave 
the baby's back. They gave him back to shut Nan's big mouth. But no, that hasn't happened because, you know, my babies are important to my family because they're blood. But they know more important than all those 16, 17,000 other babies out there that also need to come home. We have to stand together. We have no room in our home for shame. Together we can bring our babies home. I have a grandson, he's 12 in November. He was in the care for 12, for seven years. My grandson doesn't ever remember. He was taken when he was three. He doesn't ever remember being in my home. Sometimes to give him a cuddle is like trying to connect with a stranger down the street. It's very hurtful. I had a very close relationship with that grandson. I have none now. These are also the crimes that the department puts on us. They deem us as unfit. I don't drink alcohol, I never have in my life. Yet I'm also pigeonholed in the fact that I'm dirty, I never work. I was a nurse for over 30 years, for Christ's sake. I don't do drugs, the only drugs I take is the ones the doctors shove down my throat. And yet I'm unsuitable. These parenting courses they give, I challenge anybody that writes those, what makes them a better parent than me. We don't ask the department to understand how we as Aboriginal people since existence have always been, we're communal people. We're not just mum and dad in that house, mum and dad in that house. We raise our children as a community. They don't understand that. We're not asking them for, for them to understand, just accept that there's a difference. We as Grandmothers Against Removals um, implemented the guiding principles, which I do apologise, I didn't bring a copy, but maybe the organisers can go on the net and get it. It is a living document. The department thinks it's wonderful. I think they're a fool because what we've actually done is revamped um, their policies and procedures in how they're meant to <coughs> engage with Aboriginal communities. It is a living document. Um, it did start in Gunnedah because that's where Grandmas Against Removals first started. But as a living document, um, it's always been my dream that it be implemented throughout Australia. So that means it can be ad adapted, changed, um, things added to suit your own community. Whilst Grandmothers Against Removal started in Gunnedah, New South Wales, I'm very proud to say that we, we are represented through all states. I've been over to Africa, Tunisia, in 2015. I was invited over there to the World Social Forum to talk about what's happening with Indigenous children here in Australia. Sadly, this 
is important to us because we're Aboriginals of Australia. But it's not unique in the fact that this is occurring worldwide. Wherever there has been an invasion of Aboriginal lands, children are being forcibly removed. They charge us with, you know, mistreating our children. And again, this is not unique, but I'm going to say, my grandchildren were abused in out-of-home care, not only by their carers, where they were shuffled around left, right and centre, but also by the department. They were bit. They were, they were bashed. My granddaughter ran two miles to, the, to a solicitor to get them to move her from where she was. And they put her back there. She broke her arm at school. I was not allowed to go to the hospital and sit with her. They said, if, and I used to work at that hospital as well. They said if I went there, they would have police remove me. And they would let me know when they could get someone to supervise me sitting beside my granddaughter at the hospital. She was nine years of age. I'm still waiting on that phone call. That was in 2010. I guess her arm is better. She's home. I do thank you for listening to me. It is something that we all need to think about. Where we go from here and what, what, what we're going to do with this. Because I don't know whether all you young people, whether you've got children or not, but I can tell you now, this, these criminal activities that the department practices, you're not exempt either. They'll come for your children one day. And maybe you'll look for someone like me to stand up and help you fight for them. Thank you. That was Annie Hazel Collins from Grandmothers Against Removals, New South Wales, speaking at the Students of Sustainability Conference in Nam that started in the first weekend of July. Thanks to Annie Hazel Collins and Uncle Bill Nicholson, who's featured on today's show. I'm AC, and you've been listening to The Radioactive Show. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. The Radioactive Show would like to thank the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth for their support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program to you. The Radioactive Show is produced in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in touch with The Radioactive Show, you can call us on 03 9419 8377. You can send us an email at radioactive show.3cr at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook page. On today's show, I use music from bensound.com. Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.